Go ahead and grab a Bible or a device with a Bible on it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If if you don't have that, we'll have the passage on the screens behind me. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Today we're starting a new series that we're calling Gospel Identity. And, uh, you know, this whole question of identity is really the central question in our culture today. You know, how you answer the question, who am I, is really, really important. And what we know is that question is not an easy question to answer. It's complicated. It has a lot of different layers to it, which is why most of us at some point in time have struggled in the issue or around this issue of identity. And I think there's a tendency to think that only students kind of struggle with this. Middle school, high school, college students kind of struggle uh, with this question of identity. But as a pastor, I've seen a lot of adults struggle with this. I've seen men who've lost their jobs struggle with this question of identity. I've seen people who've lost their parents struggle with this question of identity. Or, you know, those who've kind of walked through the pain of divorce struggle with their identity. And so I think it's part of our human condition. I think it's a part of our brokenness to kind of forget who we are and to kind of question our identity and kind of question who we are. And then I think what makes it so challenging, this issue of identity is so challenging, is it not only is so important that we know who we are, but I don't think, uh, I don't think there's, there's ever been a more difficult time to answer that question in human history than, than today. It is really, really challenging in this information cell phone age that we live in. And so there's just a great deal of identity angst uh, in our culture today. And certainly, uh, you know, we, we get this consistent piece of advice. We hear it uh, from, you know, social media and celebrity culture all the time, this, this piece of advice that says, be true to yourself, right? We hear that all the time, be, be true to yourself. And uh, what it really means is that you, you act in accordance with who you think that you are. It's real important uh, to do that. And so there are corollaries to this, uh, this kind of mantra of being true to yourself, like follow your heart or uh, think for yourself, be willing to stand out in a crowd. And so this whole concept of being true to yourself, it is the greatest virtue in modern secular culture. There's no question about it. This is the highest virtue, simply you know, being true to yourself. And so it represents really the core value of the modern self, which is authenticity. And so authenticity is really just the the characteristic of being genuine, not being fake, being real. And so there's a real hunger in our culture today for authenticity. And I think instinctively we know that uh, so many times uh, different people are lying to us. There's a, lot of diff- there's a lot of misinformation in our culture today. And so different people are lying to us, like our politicians consistently lie, or advertisers lie to us, or certainly, you know, the 24-hour cable news uh, can, can certainly lie to us. And so as a result, there's just hunger within us for something real, for something true. And what's ironic about that is we, we long for truth and authenticity uh, even as we reject the concept of absolute truth. So that, that's, that's kind of uh, paradoxical. But here's, here's the reason why I say all of that, just to set this up. You know, as we, as we hear this advice, be true to yourself, you know, the reality is you can't be true to yourself if you don't know who you are. Like, how in the world can you be true to yourself if you can't answer the question, who am I? How do you even do that? 
So then the question becomes, well, where, where do I begin? How, how do I know? How do I answer this question of who am I? And so contrary to what secular culture says, uh, you're never going to answer that question by looking within yourself. You're never going to answer the question of identity by just examining your feelings. You're going to have to look outside of yourself. You're going to have to look to your creator. You're going to have to look to God and his word. See, you didn't create yourself, so there's no way you can tell yourself what you were created for. You know, you've heard me share this in the past, but if I, if I handed you an invention that you had never seen before, you wouldn't know its purpose, um, and the invention itself would not be able to tell you. Only the creator of the invention could tell you, or maybe if there was an owner's manual that accompanied it. See, you were created by your creator, and only your cr creator can tell you who you are and why you were created. Now, are you ready for some good news? He's told us. He has revealed that to us. In his love and in his grace, he has answered the question of identity through the, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to tackle this question of identity by looking at what I think is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. And we're going to look at one of the greatest books in all of the Bible. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 1. And I'm going to make a big ask of you this morning. I'm going to ask you to be here every week in this series. This series on gospel identity. And here's why. Because, because what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1 is he gives us one of the greatest descriptions of the gospel in, in, in all of Scripture. And if we will allow it to fill our minds... You know, as Dustin said a little bit earlier, if we, if we will let it just kind of saturate our hearts, it'll change your life. It will absolutely change your life. See, the reality is knowledge and love go hand in hand. You can't love what you don't know. And, and so the reality is the more that you come to know who God is, the more you come to know his attributes, you, the more that you come to know what he has done for us in space and in time, the more you grow to love and trust him. And the more that you grow to love and trust him, the more joy that you're going to have in your life because your life's going to be getting traction in who you were created to be. Because you see, there's another benefit to it is this. As I come to know who he is, I actually come to know myself. Because the only way I can answer the question of who I am is, is only by relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you see, I was created by him and for him, and I cannot know my identity apart from him. And that's the mistake of secular culture today. We've avoided and rejected God, and we're trying to answer the question of identity without him. And it just doesn't work. And then as I come to know who I am, I'm able to rest in who God made me to be in relationship to him. And that rest is something we we really desperately need. So let me uh, take a few minutes and kind of set up the book of Ephesians because we are going to be in this series uh, for the next several months. And uh, so first of all, let me just give you some, some observations uh, about this book so it'll kind of help ground us uh, in the book of Ephesians, especially as you're working through it and, and meditating on it and reading it and considering it throughout the week, which is what we really want you to do. And uh, so the first thing is this, we need to learn a little gospel grammar. Okay, so 
So what you'll notice about Ephesians is it has six chapters to it. And, um, and so in the first three chapters, you're going to see that almost every single verb in the first three chapters, one, two, and three, uh, every single verb, it, almost every single verb is in the indicative mood. Now, I, I just know I lost half the room at that point, okay? But um, let me just explain what the indicative mood is. It's a statement of fact. So you're going to read reading Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and it's going to say God did this, and God did that, and God did this, and God did that, and God did this, and God did that, and it's all a statement of fact. And it's just over and over and over and again. And what you see is what Christianity really is, not what we do for God, but what he's done for us. And that's part of the beauty of the gospel. But then you get to chapter 4, and you notice this word, therefore, and there's a transition that happens. So God did this, God did that, God did this, God did that, therefore... This then is how we live. Therefore, live this way. And so there's a a verb change there. And then all of a sudden you start seeing these imperatives in chapters 4, 5, and 6. God did this, so we need to live this way. God did that, so we need to live that way. And so what you see is this, you know, these these different uh, mood tenses, if you will. The indicative always precedes the imperative. What God has done for us always precedes what we are to do for him. We see the glory of his love, the glory of his grace, therefore we live for him. We're not motivated out of fear, we're not motivated out of guilt, we're not motivated out of shame. No, we see his love for us and love is what motivates us to walk and obey him. You see this in the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are ten words, ten Ten rules, right? Ten commandments. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that, right? But what precedes those imperative statements? Well, God's grace does, right? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I heard your cry in Egypt, and I delivered you from the house of Pharaoh, and I saved you from the Red Sea, and I, and I, I brought you out of bondage and in, into into glorious freedom you see what God has done for us always precedes what we do for him and so this by the way is what makes Christianity so unique among the religions of the world compare all the other religions to Christianity and what you're going to find is all the religions are basically what we are to do for God to earn his acceptance to earn position it's what we do for him But the gospel is completely different. It's not about what we do for him. It's about what God has done for us. In fact, what we're going to read in just a minute is that that God loves us. What Ephesians says is that God loved you and chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you had time to perform for him. He already set his love on you. And uh, he loves you just because he loves you. So that's just the first thing. That's just some gospel grammar. I want you to notice this as we kind of start working through Ephesians. Secondly, I want to say this, that Ephesians is really Paul's theological masterpiece. What he's done in these six chapters is condensed everything you need to know about the Christian faith right in, right, uh, you know, densely packed into these into these six chapters. So the first three, he's showing the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of God's initiative that he's taken in our salvation. And then verses or chapters four, five, and six, the most practical instruction you will have in all the Bible. Because he's talking about 
marriage. He's talking about parenting. He's talking about workplace relationships, conflict management, forgiveness, spiritual warfare. He just unpacks how to live the Christian life in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and it's a beautiful thing. Third thing I would say about Ephesians is that it was really a survival. It was written as a survival guide for Christians living in hostile environments. Now, Ephesus is a city. It's one of the most intimidating and impressive cities uh, in all of the world. It was the fourth largest city in the world. It was in modern-day Turkey. It was a seaport city, and uh, it was one of the main trade hubs for the Roman Empire. So there's a tremendous amount of diversity, tremendous amount of multiculturalism going on there. And religiously, it was a buffet line for all the different gods that you ever wanted to worship. So whatever you wanted to worship, they had it for you there. You know, the city of Ephesus itself had 50 different temples, and it boasted the largest temple in the world in the time of the Apostle Paul. Sexual immorality was a literal industry. I'm not kidding. All the temples offered temple prostitution as a part of their cultic worship. And so what happened in Ephesus stayed in Ephesus. Unless it was contagious, then you carried it around with you everywhere you went. So all of that to say, Ephesians was not a very friendly place to Christians. Does that sound familiar? Maybe your high school is not very friendly to your Christian faith. Maybe your workplace is not very friendly to your Christian faith. Well, we just need to get in line with the Christians of all the ages And so this is just kind of part of what it means to live life in a fallen, broken world. And so what we have in Ephesians is Paul's encouragement even in all of this. So I'm going to ask, as we read this, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. And uh, I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, out of reverence for the word of God, I'm going to ask if you will stand as we read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. You may be seated. So what the Apostle Paul does 
There's a lot going on there, as you could see. But what he does, if I could just simplify it for us, is he makes several statements about our salvation. He's describing the beauty of what God has done, what God has initiated on our behalf to bless us, to bring us into him. And as he's describing this, uh, there are uh, huge implications that answer, that speak right to this question of identity and answers this question who I am. And so what he's helping us to see is really uh, not only what God has done, but understanding who we are in him. And, uh, and that speaks directly uh, to this whole question of identity. I think Christians really struggle remembering their identity and their identity as, as Christ followers. I think we so many times before we even realize what's happening, I've done this so many times myself, is we start chasing false identities. We start chasing what the world tells us to chase and we, and we bump into roadblocks and we bump into walls because it just doesn't work trying to live out an identity that's really not us. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he sets before us two identity markers that, uh, and I want to unpack these in the time that we have uh, remaining with us. And so when we think about this whole question of who am I, number one, let's answer it this way. I am in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Who am I? Well, I am in Christ. Christ is in me. As a believer in Jesus Christ, my primary identity, your primary identity is in Christ. You see this recurrence in the chapter. I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13 times in, in all of chapter 1, he mentions this reality, this identity marker, that we are in Christ. Let me show it to you in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. See that? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So just two times right there in verse 3, you see our primary identity. We are in Christ in him. Look at verse 6. He has blessed us in the beloved. You see that? Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. And so what Paul is describing here, when he's, when he's describing us as being in Christ, what he's describing is our unity with Jesus. He's, he's talking about our union with Christ. And so the moment that you received God's grace, the moment you became a Christian, you were united with Christ. You were united with him instantly and you were united with him legally. So practically what this means is Everything that belongs to Jesus, by virtue of my union with him, belongs to me. Now, you, you guys didn't hear what I just said, right? Like everything that Jesus has, and as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he owns it all, does he not? Well, my union with Christ means now I have everything he has. It comes to me through him. So imagine a poor woman. Imagine, imagine a lady who can't pay her bills. She, she can't make her car payment. You know, she, she can't make her mortgage payment. They're about to, clo they're about to foreclose on her house. And, and then all of a sudden she meets a billionaire. And they fall in love. And they get married. Can you imagine that? They get married. And as soon as they say, I do, something happens instantly. Something happens legally. All of his billions now belong to her. 
So the day that you receive God's grace, the day that you were regenerated by the Spirit of God uh, and brought into his family, you were united to Christ, and everything that, that the groom Jesus has has been transferred to you. Paul gives us a little flavor of this in verse 3. He kind of touches on this a little bit. You wish he would dig down a little deeper, but he just kind of breezes through this. He, it says this, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what he's talking about is our union with Christ brings great privileges. And so he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What does it mean to be blessed in the heavenly realms? It means this, that my residence, my home is heaven. Do you get that? My home now is in heaven. I have a new residence. And, and so, so I'm just a foreigner here. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just a stranger here. I, I'm just a sojourner here. My home's in heaven. Why? Because I've been united with Christ. And I have a new residence. And so some of us are so distraught about the direction our country is going. But we're kind of acting like we're first citizens of America we're not. We're citizens of heaven. We're just ambassadors here. We're just representing the king here. This isn't our home. Heaven is our home. And then he tells us we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What that means is all of the blessings, all of the honor that Jesus earned and achieved is now ours. Everything he did is now ours and belongs to us. That's pretty it's pretty incredible. Now, what does our union with Christ really mean? Just kind of practically, um, it, it means three things. Uh, number one, um, it means, you know, our, our being united to Jesus means we are united to Christ in his death. That's what union with Jesus is. We were united in his death. It's kind of like baptism. When we baptize, we immerse. We were baptized in his death. What that means practically is this, when Jesus died, we die. If any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So what this really means is, is this, that all of my sin and all of your sin and all of my rebellion and all of your rebellion and all the things I've done to hurt people and all the things I've done to hurt God and all the things that you've done to hurt people and to hurt God, all of that has been dealt with by virtue of my union with Christ's death. It's been wiped out because, you see, when Jesus died, by grace through faith, I died with him. And that old sinful life doesn't define my identity anymore. There's something new there, which we'll get to. But the old has passed away. The new has come. You are in Christ and you died. You think about the Apostle Paul. What did he do? He tormented Christians. He persecuted Christians. In some instances, he murdered Christians. Think about his sinful past. And, and the reality of the gospel is the guilt and the sin and shame of my past, I no longer have to carry anymore. Why? Because when Jesus died, I died. I've been set free from it. And so when the apostle Paul had to, you know, travel around and, and you know, he, he committed his life to Christ and he became a leader in the church. So then he traveled around. Guess who he met with? As he's traveling around, he met all the people that he persecuted and tormented. He had to meet families of people that he murdered 
How could he do that? Because his guilt, sin, and shame have been taken away. And he would later say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's my primary identity in Christ. You guys track it with me? This is amazing. I mean, like what I'm, what, what, what Paul is telling us is absolutely amazing. So, so, so we're united in Jesus' death. We're also united to Christ in his life. We're not just united in his death. We're united to his righteous life. It, his righteousness comes to me. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly and completely every second of his life. He never broke the commandments of God. Never, not one time. So his righteousness is transferred to me. And, and so I'm in Christ and he's righteous. His righteousness comes to me so that the Father sees me. He doesn't see all of my brokenness and all of my habits and my faults and my failings and my, you know, all of my sins and all of the garbage of life. That's not what he sees. What he sees is I'm a son. I'm a child of God. That's what he sees. And that's how he views me. You see, because I'm united to Christ, Jesus' record comes to me. Uh, the sinner marries the sinless one, and the record of the sinless one comes to us. And so then we can be holy and blameless before God. Because you see, what the Apostle Paul says here is this, even as he chose us in verse 4, uh, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, are we going to do that on our own? Are we going to be holy and blameless on our own? Are we going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and pull this off? Are we going to do that? Absolutely not. The only way we're going to do this is by being in Christ, being in his righteous life. So we're united in his death. We're united in his righteous life. And then thirdly, we are united to Christ in his resurrection. Now this is, this is really cool. When Jesus died, he died a sinner. So, so what that means is this. My sin and our sins were transferred to him on the cross. And so when he died, he died condemned. Cursed is the man who, died, who hangs on the tree, right? That's what the scripture says. He was cursed for us because our sins were placed on him. Yet, on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And what that means is this, Jesus was vindicated. What that means is this, payment for our sins was made and received, paid in full. That's what it means. And so the Father, in the resurrection, what the resurrection tells us is the Father received payment for our sins. The debt's paid in full. And uh, I remember, you know, a while ago, uh, my family, we were eating at Texas Roadhouse. We, we love to go there. And, and, uh, and so we finished up, and, and uh, the, our server came up to us and said, hey, your bill's been taken care of. And I'm like, really? And, and uh, she's like, yep, your bill, somebody else has paid for it. Somebody else has taken care of it. I was just absolutely blown away. It was like, wow, what an amazing gift. And uh, that somebody just blessed us in that way, and, uh, and that's exactly what we're talking about here, is the debt that we couldn't pay has been paid for us. Now, the implications of this, 
you know, when you're united to Christ in his resurrection, what it really means practically is because Jesus was raised from the dead, we're going to be raised from the dead. You know why? Because we're in Christ. We're in him. And, and there's a sense in which the resurrection has already happened. It's so sure. Because God, God sees all of time. He already sees how the end's going to work out. He already sees that. And so resurrection is so real. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.1 says, we've been raised with Christ already. Even though we're waiting for it. Pretty incredible. We've been united to Christ in his resurrection. I want to show you a painting by Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, he was a gifted artist, as you know, and uh, the thing about Van Gogh is he, um, he struggled with mental illness most of his life. And uh, this is his rendering of the raising of Lazarus. So you see Lazarus is depicted there uh, kind of in the bottom in the white. And uh, so what art scholars will tell you is when Van Gogh painted this, he painted his own face in the face of Lazarus. You know Why? Because his hope was so fixed on his resurrection, his coming resurrection, because he believed as a Christian in the resurrection of Jesus. And so this was, this was his way of saying, you know what, it's not, just, it's not just the resurrection of Lazarus, it's my resurrection. Dear Christian, it's your resurrection. And it's just as sure as it can be. So who are you? You are in Christ. That is your primary identity. That's as what it says. As a believer in Christ, you are. Now let me just clarify something here. And this is, this is really, really important. So, so hear me on this. You know, becoming in Christ is not a process. It's not a process. It happens at a moment in time. Uh, you know, it's kind of like marriage is not a process. Uh, it happens you one minute you're not married, the next minute you are, right? And uh, that's the way it happens. You know, I ask people, are you a Christian? And uh, sometimes the response that I get is, well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm on the way. Nope, that's not it. That's, that, that's not the answer. You see, if I were to ask somebody, are you married? And they say, well, I'm trying. Uh, I'm doing my best. I think I'm on the way. You would say, oh, you're not married then because it's a yes or no proposition, right? It's not, it, it's not a process. It's like one minute you're, you're not married and the next minute you are. And, and so there's a line that has to be crossed for you to become in Christ. Tim Keller tells a story of the former Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop. He was a brilliant surgeon in Philadelphia years ago. This was years and years ago. And uh, his wife begged him for years to go to church with her. And he just wouldn't go, wouldn't go. And she just, just, she just would not relent. Finally, finally he caved in and he started going to church with his wife. And this is what he said. He said, he said when I started going to church with my, my wife, I intellectually rejected all the tenets, all of them, of the Christian faith. Completely rejected when I started. He said 12 months later, I had embraced all of the tenets 
of the Christian faith, and I had become a Christian. I had become in Christ. And what he said is this, I don't remember when it happens. I can't tell you the moment that it happens. All I can tell you is it happens because there was a change in my life. And so the point is, there's a point. There's a point. There's a line that you have to cross. And so salvation is by grace. And so you can't be working up to it because there's no work for you to do. That's what the Apostle Paul is explaining in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus earned it for you. There's no, well, I'm on my way. Jesus is the way. And so there are a lot of people attending church. There are a lot of people doing a lot of religious things. But my question is this, are you married to Jesus? Have you said, I do, to the bridegroom Jesus? Are you in Christ? So that's the first one, the first identity marker. You're in Christ. Secondly, I'm a member of God's family. I am a member of God's family. See, what the Apostle Paul is explaining here is this, that you've been chosen. What the Apostle Paul has, is explaining here is you've been predestined. You've been chosen for God's family. This is exactly what he says. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What he's talking about is this. You've been chosen to be a part of God's family. You know, God's saying, I'm not going to be just your Savior. I'm not going to be just your Lord. I'm also going to be your father. I'm going to be your dad. You're going to be in my family. You're going to be sons, my sons, and my daughters. And so being in Christ means I'm not just a believer. It also means I'm a belonger. It means I'm a part of the family of God. And so again, what we're seeing here is our identity is defined by not just being in relationship to Jesus, but our identity is defined by being in relationship to one another, the church of Jesus, the family of God, the body of Christ. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is really trying to say. You've, you've been chosen, dear Christian. You, you've been chosen from the foundation of the world. You've been predestined. Let me show you kind of practically how this works. Romans, Romans 8, 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul says this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know what Abba means? Abba is a word that means Papa. means Dada. means that you have this closeness with God. You've got this um, proximity, this knowledge of God. So much so that you call him Papa. You can call out to him and you know that he, he hears you. You know that he loves you. And so... And so that goes on to say the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what does the Spirit do? The Spirit reminds us of our identity as sons and daughters of God. He whispers in our ear, you, you, are, my, you are my child. He speaks to us. He encourages us. He witnesses to us. He reminds us that we are his, that we're part of the family of God. That's what, he's, that's what he does. Now, when you think about adoption... Because that's what the Apostle Paul is really unpacking here. What does it mean practically to be adopted? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that you have access. You have access 
That's what adoption really is. You have access to God. It means you, you can boldly approach the throne of grace and you know that he hears you. You know that he is in you. You know that he is with you. You know that he, he is for you. That's, that's what we're talking about. You have, I mean, think about this. You have access to the almighty, to almighty God. You know, a few years ago, um, and this actually happened in 2023, but um, a few years ago when President Obama was uh, in office, a toddler, there was a family outside of the, the gates of the White House, and their toddler slipped through the fence at the White House and started running on the lawn. And all of a sudden, SWAT team broke out, soldiers, Secret Service. You know, President Obama's giving a speech on Iraq, and, uh, and, and they had to shut that down because of the security breach. And they're, they're swarming. They're swarming this little toddler, you know what I mean? And, and uh, just kind of a little baby right there. And uh, just kind of securing the whole thing. And, and uh, what I would encourage you to do the next time the president is in Indianapolis, uh, I want you to go see the president. And as soon as you see the president, make a beeline for the president. Just sprint as fast as you can. Run right to him, and I mean, don't stop, don't stop, and then see what happens, and see how well that goes. You think that's going to go well? No, it's not. You know why it's not going to go well? You, you don't have access. You don't have access at all. What I know about President Obama's daughters, they had access. They'd go anywhere they wanted in the White House. They ruled the roost. You know why? Because of who their papa was you know what the apostle paul is saying dear christian you have access because the king of kings and lord of lords is your papa and you know what god the father is crazy about the son and god the father is crazy about you you know why because you're in christ and you're a member of the family and so when you think about living out, you know, this, this whole thing of being a part of God's family, what, what, what does it mean practically to kind of live this out on a daily basis? I, I, think, I think it means three things. I think, I think number one, it means it really should call for humility. You know, living in the family of God should humble us because it's, it's not like we deserve it. It's not like we earned it. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gift from God. It, it's a gift of his grace. He set his love on us before we had any time to do any earning. We, we didn't merit it. So it really should humble us. We should never look down on anyone else. You know why? Because we know that we are, we are objects of wrath. Ephesians 2 is going to tell us that we're really in our nature living in rebellion against God. And we really deserve his wrath but that's not what we got. And that should humble us. Should give us a love for people, right? It should, should really humble us. I think the second implication of being a part of God's family is it means we have security. It should call for humility, but it also means we have security. It's like the great hymn, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that all of us? Isn't that me? Isn't that you? Prone to leave the God I love. So what this means is that even in my struggles, even in my failures, even when I blow it, 
I can be secure in God's love. I'm secure in his family. He's not going to disown me. He's not going to adopt me and then let me go and then kick me out and chase me off. You know, we're going to be chased away because we fail to perform for Christ. We've always failed to perform for Christ. You see, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we can rest secure in his love, which is essential for fighting sin every day, knowing that his love for me doesn't change. And there's a great verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 16, where the writer of Proverbs says this, the righteous falls seven times and rises again, or, you know, gets up again. Seven, seven times. Now, that, that number seven is, you know, in, in the Bible, it just means perfection. It means completion. Like, this, this person's falling all the time, all the time. And, and what the writer of Proverbs is saying is the righteous person gets up again and again and again. So, so what this means is this, that a lot of us think that the Christian life is, is, is never failing. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is what you do when you fail. What do you do? You get back up. You believe the gospel. You get back up. You use the bar of soap of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And you get back up. You believe the gospel. No matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times you've disappointed yourself or how you've kind of messed up your marriage, you need to get back up. And it's in getting back up that demonstrates your faith in the glorious gospel that you're part of the family of God. And you're like, Scott, man, if you tell people, man, they're secure in Christ, man, you're just going to invite people to go just live a life of sin. No. Remember, we died to it. How can we live in it any longer? How do we have a license to sin? We're dead. We, we, were, we were united to Christ in his death. So we respond in humility because we're part of the family of God. We respond in security. We, we know we are loved by God and that never changed. And then lastly, we live for his glory. We live for his glory. Look at verse 6. All of this, all that God has done to the praise of of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What he's talking about is this, that we've been chosen for a purpose, and that is to live for the glory of God. To live in such a way that I don't call attention to me, but I call the attention to the one who saved me. Does that make sense? And, and this is the disconnect with the modern discussion of identity. The modern discussion of identity is all about self-glory. Look at me. Look at my political affiliations. Look at my sexuality. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my wealth. Look at all that I've done. It's all about self-glory. But in the kingdom, in God's family, it's all about his glory. Because when I see how much he has done for me, when I see how much he loves me, my only appropriate response is, God, I want to live for you. I want to live for your glory. I, I want to bring praise and honor to you. That's, that's my purpose in life. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So practically what this means is this, that, that if you're a stay-at-home mom, be the best stay-at-home mom for the glory of God that you can be. You know, if you're a teacher, if you're a plumber, if you're a baker, if you're a butcher or a candlestick maker, just, just, just do it all for the glory of God. Don't you see? 
you know, what, what it is is this. We're both small and significant at the same time. Like we're, we're, just, we're just one life in the midst of millions and billions of lives, but yet in God's eyes we're significant and he sees what you do for him. And even though the world doesn't recognize you, he sees, he recognizes, and he remembers. And you do it for his glory, you do it to please him. That's why in verse 1, of Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He figured it out. He he used to be, you know, basically a blasphemer, right? He he used to be a a persecutor, but but now his life has changed and it's dedicated to the glory of God. So what do we do with this? Well, one thing I didn't mention in the intro, um, what's interesting about the first chapter of Ephesians is this, that... uh, from verse 3 to verse 14 is basically one long sentence. It's one long response of praise from the Apostle Paul's heart all the way down to his pen. And what he's doing in those verses is he's describing salvation from beginning to end. And what's fascinating about it is there are 48 pronouns in this description and 30 of them belong to God. There are 24 verbs in the description, and God does 21 of them, and we do three of them. Isn't that interesting? But see, our mindset is, oh, i got to earn it. i got to work for it. i got to achieve it. No, we just, we just need to do three things. And you're like, well, what are those three things? Well, number one, we receive. We receive his grace. Number two, we believe. We believe the gospel. We believe what Jesus has done. And then number three, we live in hope because we know what's coming. And uh, those things unite us to Christ. Those things bring us into his family. And uh, that's what we are called to do. So hopefully, as we think about in Christ, as we think about part of the family of God, We know who we are. We rest in who we are. And we will see him face to face. So let's let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We confess we, we don't understand even all the mysteries of our salvation how you choose us from the foundation of the world, how you set your love on us before there was even a a gleam in our mother's eye. But God, I I just thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your initiative. You took the first step. You left your throne in heaven, Jesus. Jesus emptied yourself you took on flesh and you gave up your life for us and it just reminds us that you have been building a family since the beginning of time and we are grateful to be a part of it so I pray today that your Holy Spirit would work in our midst that you would just open our eyes to our gospel reality to our gospel identity that you would help us to see Everything you have belongs to us. 
So that encourages us. That empowers us. It changes us. So we just, we give our, our lives to you. Thank you that we are in Christ. Christ is in us. Thank you for bringing us into your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said,